Dear God, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for your church and the opportunity to study um, your word in your church and with other brothers and sisters. And I thank you for your kingdom and the beauty and the bigness of that and the fact that we can spend 10 weeks studying it and probably not even, um, well, I know, not fully get all the way through this. And, and there's stuff that, that we will just never know until the day comes that we get to see it in all its beauty. Lord, I pray that this semester and tonight would give us a greater hunger for it and a greater satisfaction in what you have given us. Um, I ask you this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so we are in, um, as I said, the last week in this semester on the kingdom. And, uh, and tonight I get to talk to you about the kingdom specifically as it is taught about or spoken about in the epistles. Um, not a whole lot is done on this, trust me, because I looked around for resources. Um, there's not tons of stuff written about it. And, and one of the reasons why, so I'm going to flip this mic around. There we go. All right. Um, so, so there's not a lot on it because the epistles honestly don't address the kingdom nearly as much as the other parts of Scripture. The Old Testament obviously talks about it a lot. Um, the Gospels talk about it a lot. Acts talks about it some. But the epistles really do not address the issue nearly as much as the others. So, for example, in the Gospels, if you add all the times this word kingdom, basileia in the Greek, is mentioned, it is mentioned 117 times in the Gospels. Um, in the epistles, all the epistles together, 19 times. Um, so, uh, Matthew and Luke both have twice that many mentions of the kingdom just in their books alone. And so not nearly as much said about the kingdom in, uh, in the epistles, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing there about it. And, and, and also it's, it's true that even when the, when the word kingdom isn't used, there's times in which the kingdom is being taught about in the epistles. And so we'll, we'll catch a little bit of those tonight. Let me give you kind of Drew's quick definition of the kingdom. Um, just, just so you know, now you've been talking about it for nine weeks. So um, hopefully you've got some concept in your mind of what the kingdom of God is. But if I'm giving you the really quick definition, um, I would say it is the rule and reign of God. The rule and reign of God, and this is how you know where it is. It is anywhere that God's rule is rightly recognized and he is rightly worshipped. Um, anywhere that God is rightly recognized and he is rightly worshipped, that is the kingdom, and that's where the kingdom goes. And that's why the church and the kingdom can be confused. They're not the exact same thing, but hopefully wherever the church is, God's rule is rightly recognized and he is rightly worshipped. Um, and so this is, this is what the kingdom looks like on the earth. And, and here are some things that the epistles teach us about it. Um, let me just say this kind of up front. Uh, what we've been doing a lot, sorry, I'm going to try to tighten this mic so I'm not getting so much pop on it. There we go. I think that's better. Um, so... Um, what, what we've been doing a lot is actually taking kind of larger texts and walking our way through those texts uh, slowly to kind of understand what a given passage or book says about the kingdom. Tonight, what I'm going to be doing is just referencing a bunch of different passages. Um, and, and so if you are a note taker, 
um, and you like to have every note taken exactly as it was said, you're going to be a little frustrated tonight. So I'll just tell you, when we stop and pause on a passage, write that down, try and write. But if you try and every reference I throw out, try and write down what it is and what I say about it, um, you might get just mad at me. So um, for the sake of our relationship, you might not try to do that um, so much tonight, just so you know. So here are, here are at least three things that as we study through the epistles um, that are, are told to us, um, that the writers in them, and primarily when we talk about the epistles, there's primarily one writer who's doing most of the work there, and that is who? Paul, the Apostle Paul. So most of this comes from Paul and his theology about the kingdom, although there are a couple things in there from Peter and and James. Uh, So we'll we'll see a little bit. But primarily when we look at the kingdom, here's some things that we know. The king in the epistles, the kingdom is the sons. All right, it belongs to Christ. Christ rules and reigns over it. Now, this might seem, well, let me just kind of point out a couple things. Colossians 1.13 talks about us being brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It is his kingdom. Hebrews 1 is this big kind of coronation type chapter talking about Jesus. And what it does is it actually uses coronation psalms all the way through it. Psalms that were sung about the king or written about the king, and he applies the those things to Jesus. It is his kingdom. It is his royal scepter. It is his, his throne that lasts forever and says all those things are true about Jesus. And so the kingdom is big and with Christ at the center of it. And this is really important, okay? I, I know that that first statement, so the kingdom belongs to Jesus. Hopefully, again, after nine weeks, you got that much down, all right? But here's why I want to say that, because it is important to recognize the kingdom is not where people are being kind to each other. The the kingdom is not where we get together and we sing songs. The kingdom is not just people doing what the Bible says. The kingdom is recognizing and worshiping God's rule with Christ at the center of that. Um, Recognizing and worshiping and submitting to his son. So this is really important for us to be able to see and to be able to catch that. And, And they do really want to put a lot of stress on that um, the very first uh, few verses of Romans, Romans is considered, and this is a text you can go to or you can write down, Romans 1, Romans is considered kind of the quintessential gospel book, right? It is um, the main book where if you want a um, kind of heavy laid out um, listing of, of the doctrine of the gospel and what that is, you go to Romans. And, and so what's really interesting is usually when you look at the introductions, the first few verses of Paul's um, Gospels, you can get a decent clue about where he wants to go in those just by his first few verses. They're kind of almost little mini summaries of what he's about to say. And, and I really find it interesting. It, it wasn't until a few years ago that I first saw the way that Paul introduces his gospel to Romans, okay? So you think of all the things that the gospel is about, um, salvation and justification by faith and um, eternal life and, and all grace and all these things, and notice how little of those things make it into Paul's introduction and what things do make it into his introduction. This is Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and here's what he says about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So this is really important. The gospel concerning salvation. Nope, 
Not what the gospel is about, Paul says. The gospel concerning eternal life. Nope, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel concerning justification by faith. Nope, the gospel concerning his son. Specifically this, concerning his son who was descended from David. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David, i.e. the rightful king the promised Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for and expecting, descended from David according to the flesh, and that's important too, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, huge text and some huge things broached there, but a lot of the things that we talk about sometimes with the gospel not mentioned. I'm not saying those aren't important to Paul, not saying he doesn't get to those, just saying it's interesting the way he wants to start his text. It is the gospel about the son who is a descendant of David, descended from David, he is the king. And there is a number of um, kingdom-oriented language in Romans, even if that word kingdom isn't mentioned a lot. One is what he just said at the end, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Romans 10, he'll make this very famous statement that if you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Those are the two things he just said in the summary, right, in the intro. Believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And, and it's very kind of interesting. Those are kind of two of the major things that he pushes there. Knowing this, and, and I assume that you've talked about this a little bit, but that idea Jesus is Lord is more than just a he's the boss or he's the son of God. That's like a political, that's a, a political uh, motto, if you will. That's a pledge of allegiance. That's what you say about Caesar all the time. Caesar is Lord. Printed on money, okay, said out loud by citizens as they pledge to him, Caesar is Lord. And, and Paul says, if you want to be saved, this is one of the important things. You confess Jesus is king. And, and this is really important for the book of Romans. Jesus sits at the center of the kingdom as the king. Here's why this really does matter, that we make sure we stress this, because we know kingdom of God, and yes, God is important, and the Father is important, but this is why it matters that the kingdom belongs to the Son, that the Son, Jesus, as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, is centered at the kingdom, that it's his kingdom, because he is a human being. Because Jesus is human and he is actually descended from the lineage of the kings through David. And as a human, he comes in and does what humans were supposed to do. So the way that things were lined out for us, um, in the beginning, the way God kind of created stuff was that um, God creates the world. And as kind of the pinnacle of his creation, he makes man. And man, this is, this is uh, my world, so I'm... Just kind of, you know, that's America a little bit, you know, just kind of go with it. Um, so, um, and this is Anna Carr. Okay, um, so anyway, um, this, is, this is the world. So the, the way that it's designed is that God creates man, and in Genesis 1.28 it says this, and God said to the male and the female, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the birds in the air and the fish in the sea and everything crawling along the ground. You are to rule over it. And so what God is doing is he gives authority to man who is in charge of ruling over and reigning over the earth on God's behalf. 
So he is supposed to rule kind of under the authority of God. For God, he is supposed to care for and take care of the earth. He's supposed to reign over it. But what we discover in Genesis 3 is that man tries to actually, um, Adam and Eve try to usurp God's authority and kind of be their own boss. Like, I'm not, I'm not ruling under you. We're going to do what we want to do, how we want to do it. And what they actually end up doing is ending up in a whole nother scenario because they listen to Satan in doing that and they end up giving authority over to him. Um, now, now I know this is, this is kind of complicated because we really do believe that God is always sovereign and he is always in control. And yet the New Testament calls the devil the prince of this world. Um, Jesus refers to him as that way, the ruler of this earth. And so does not mind saying that, that Satan, because of man's sin and because of our decision to try to usurp God's authority, we ended up handing it over to him and that Satan does have some dominion here over this earth. And so what happens in Romans, or, or what Romans is describing is Jesus being the king, and why that matters in the epistles that Jesus sits at the center of that is because Jesus comes and he restores this again. And, and he does away with this whole thing. I don't want to use my finger because that clearly did not work last time. So he does away with this, and Jesus does what man was supposed to do. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because after man messed up there and he tried to kind of go his own way, God creates another um, path through Abraham and through Israel. And so Israel is supposed to do what, what man was supposed to do in the beginning, specifically Israel's kings, um, the, the main king being David. And all of Israel's kings fail to rule on God's behalf rightly with truth and justice and with righteousness. And so when Jesus comes and he creates this kingdom and brings this kingdom, then he actually does what man was supposed to do in the beginning. And that's why it matters that the kingdom is the son's. Now here is the second thing that we see about the kingdom in the epistles. And that is that it is a future reality. The epistles, a lot of times, when they are referring to the kingdom of God, they talk about it in terms of something that is yet to come and something that we anticipate and something that we look forward to. Um, and specifically, it will be revealed with the coming of Christ is what we see a lot. Um, it's used a lot of times as a looking forward to that day as a future motivation or as a motivation for how we ought to live. So in uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, actually 2 Timothy 4, I think Paul charges Timothy um, to um, be faithful to the gospel and to preach sound doctrine and to um, do, do his job in ministering to the church. But this is what he says, I charge you in view of Christ's appearing and his kingdom to hold to sound doctrine, to preach the truth, to do all these things. That is, as you look forward to that day when Christ will appear and his kingdom will come and we look to that day, that ought to motivate you, Timothy, to want to be faithful. 
that you're going to live in a way that is worthy of that coming and that, that, um, that longs and looks forward to that day. Peter says something a little bit similar. He urges his listeners to live these godly lives in 1 Peter 1, and he, he encourages them to kind of add to, uh, add to their life all these characters and all these virtues, and he says this, that in this way there will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and again, it is this, there will be, that one day you will enter into that kingdom. It is a future thing we look forward to and we anticipate and we live in such a way as to gain entrance into that, as to be worthy of that kingdom. Here's a term that gets used a lot for us and the kingdom that is coming is that it is something that we inherit, that we will inherit or that people will inherit the kingdom. Now, um, usually when that term inherit is used, it's used in a negative context, which is mostly the writers are saying this and this and this kind of person will not inherit the kingdom, will not get into it. And so he talks a lot about that kind of person, um, but, but this is kind of his main, um, but, but this idea of inheriting becomes really a big one. And I, I want to make sure that we talk about it. I have overlooked this a lot, that the, the, the kingdom is something that we get to inherit along with Jesus. The plan is for human beings to, with Christ, inherit the kingdom. And that means that with Christ we reign. And with Christ we rule. Um, 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and even judge angels? Those are things that I thought only Jesus was supposed to do. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, actually, people will do that too, that they inherit the kingdom and they inherit some of the kingdom blessings and the kingdom authority. So there is authority of reigning and, and judging, but there's also the, the kingdom blessings of joy and of peace and of the glory that we will be in. Now, notice how what's happening actually is first Jesus comes in and he, and he takes on what man was supposed to do. And he rules rightly under the authority of God on God's behalf for God's glory. That's what we were supposed to do. And what the epistles tell us is that one day we're going to again. That one day because of what Jesus has done and because of our identification with him, that actually we'll be with him reigning and ruling like him. That we get to inherit the kingdom. And so this is looked forward to. Another thing that talks about inheriting the kingdom where it uses this term heir is something in James and it's a passage um, that we don't like to talk about a whole lot because it makes us feel weird and we don't know what to do with this. But James 2, 5 talks about the rich and the poor and it says this, that God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom. Um, just kind of a, an, an awkward passage sometimes to talk about um, in the Western world, that the poor are those that God has chosen, not meaning that there is specifically any sort of godliness um, in being poor itself, um, but that it is the poor who are more likely to be, as Peter says, rich in faith and therefore to inherit the kingdom. Um, that that um, comfort and money is going to get in the way of our ability to have faith. It's going to make it harder. Now, I said that usually when the word inherit is used about the kingdom, it's used in a negative context. Um, such and such will not inherit the, the kingdom. And that leads us to kind of this third point about the kingdom is that it is not for the unrighteous. 
And this is when you find the word kingdom in, uh, in the epistles, one of the main kinds of sentences or main ideas that gets used, if not the number one, is such and such will not inherit it. Usually, like I said, the unrighteous. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6 uh, says in 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so he goes through this whole vice lesson and says, people who live like this don't inherit it, don't get it, don't get what they were created for and what God is at work to do. He says something really, really similar to that in Galatians 5.21. He says something really, really similar to that in Ephesians 5.5. Now here's where it gets a little um, sticky is that in all of these contexts, Paul is giving warnings to believers, all of them are warnings to Christians. So in the First Corinthians 6 one, he's talking about people who are trying to um, rip each other off, fellow Christians who are trying to rip other Christians off and are trying to get ahead of each other and they end up taking each other to court and, and they can't figure out how to treat each other right. And he says, don't act like that for do you not know that people who act like that will not inherit the kingdom is what he says, which is kind of scary and kind of a very serious warning um, for Paul to give that to the church, I think. Um, now, so these are three of the major things that get stated about the kingdom in the epistles. But, but here's where it gets a little bit interesting. That is that there are a number of subjects and a number of doctrines in the Bible that are not simply an issue of this or that, but instead we discover are an issue of both and. And the kingdom, maybe as much or more than anything else, has a lot of both and attributes to it. And, and we get to see this in the way the apostle talks, uh, or the, the, the apostles talk about this stuff, so that actually the kingdom is both the sons and the fathers. Um, this is, this is a, a, a passage that I have not paid a lot of attention to. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, that's a, a cornerstone passage of the church and of the Christian faith. And I love that. The first part of that talks a lot about Christ's resurrection. All those. The back half of it, it is a long chapter. And the back half of it, often I haven't spent enough time paying attention to. But there's some really fascinating things that get said in there about the resurrection. Paul is trying to explain the resurrection to the Corinthians and how how this works, how it worked with Jesus, and then therefore how it's going to work with us as his people. This is what he says towards um, the middle, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 28, says this, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ was resurrected, and in the same way we will be resurrected at his coming. Then it says this, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus's, feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is God the Father, is accepted who put, th- who put all things in subjection under him. So the ESV gets a little clunky there trying to hear that. But it says, when it says that God put everything under Jesus' feet, Paul says, just so we're clear, it doesn't mean God put himself under Jesus' feet. It means everything but the Father is placed under Jesus' feet. When all things were subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this is um, the statement that is, is made is that Christ is given the authority. So this is kind of Christ is the king. He sits at the center of the kingdom. It is his kingdom. But what the Bible teaches us is he is given that authority by the Father. That the Father gives that kingdom to him. And, and, and what we discover in this passage is Paul says, in the end, like the very last thing that will happen in our history very last thing in history as we know it, in time as we know it, is that the authority that the Father gave to Jesus will actually be given back to him, will be given back to God himself. And so this is really kind of crazy that the final event in human history will be a reversal of what took place in the garden. So God created man and wanted to give authority to man to rule and reign on his behalf. And man tried to usurp that authority and take it for himself, ended up giving it to Satan. Here's what it says. Jesus comes and he claims the authority that was supposed to be man's. As a human being, he comes with that authority and he comes and he reigns on behalf of God. And then Paul says this, and everything is being put underneath his feet and he will destroy every authority and every power and every enemy, including, he says, the last enemy to, do, to be destroyed is death. He will destroy death. He will destroy Satan himself. And then what's going to be happening is in the garden, man tried to take his authority away from God. Jesus comes and reclaims it. And at the end of time, he gives it back. And he gives everything back to the way that it was supposed to be, where the authority and the kingdom and the power all goes to God and all the glory. And I love the way that he actually ends this passage when he says this, um, that he, he who put all things in subjection under him, this phrase, that God may be all in all. What that simply means is what we define the kingdom as, that God's rule will be rightly recognized by everyone, and he will be rightly worshipped by everyone. He will be seen for who he is. And so the kingdom will be given back in that moment. Now, this is what we just described, the culmination of the kingdom, the final chapter of human history. But it is the culmination, meaning it's the ending point, the final fulfillment, because there's actually something that is more to it. We said this, that um, the kingdom is a future reality, But as the epistles describe it and as the kingdoms describe it, it is a future reality and a present reality. (laughs) 
So it is true in the Bible, in the epistles, that we anticipate the day when Christ's kingdom will come and he will appear and he will reign and we will reign with him. And as he conquers and defeats all things, that those things are handed over to the Father. So it is true what we just read, that Christ will destroy every rule and every power and authority. But it's also true that he actually already reigns over all of it. Already reigns over all of it. This is what Ephesians 1, 20, verses 23 says. And again, this is a long one. You can write it down. This is, um, it says that God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, here it is, those words, all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what Paul says in Ephesians is, yes, there will be a day when Christ destroys everything and he conquers all the enemies and then he gives it all back to God. But the truth is Christ already rules over all of it. It already, it's already taken place. It's already been done. So there is this popular illustration that uh, preachers give sometimes. I don't know if you've heard it, but it is in describing the way that World War II ended. And in World War II, we differentiate between what they call D-Day and V-Day, right? D-Day being the day we stormed Normandy and V-Day. So that was in, I think, uh, May of 45, April or May of 45. And then V-Day is May of 1946. They, they say basically on the day that the Allied forces stormed Normandy, that is D-Day, that was the day that the war was essentially the tide had turned and you knew who was going to win. It was just a matter of time until V-Day, the actual victory, took place. So at this point, we knew it was all over, and then a year later, it was actually over. It is often described by preachers to say that this is the way that the death and resurrection of Christ takes place, that at his death and resurrection, the tides are turned, and we already know who's going to win now, and then we're waiting for V-Day, the day when it will come. Um, now, there is truth to that, and that's a helpful illustration and maybe a good way to think about it. But according to Ephesians 1 here, and according to what Colossians 2 says about Jesus making a public spectacle of the authorities and the powers and the rulers and all those things, technically, D-Day and V-Day are the cross and the resurrection. Um, so that it's already taken care of. This is the way Andrew Wilson describes it in his, in his uh, book that we've been going through like crazy with everybody right now, and that is God's stories. But he says this in there, that um, evangelism, when we think of it in these terms of like World War II imagery, we often think of evangelism as though it's kind of like defeating the last battalions of the Axis army. So we already stormed Normandy. We're already sweeping through Europe. It's just a matter, evangelism right now is a matter of taking over those last little bits before we finally win. And he says, actually, no, no, evangelism is less like that and it's more like proclaiming to those last Japanese soldiers that are hiding in the Philippine jungle that the war's already over. Like that's actually kind of more close to the truth as it is described in Ephesians, as it is described in uh, Colossians, that actually the war is already over. All we're doing is telling people what's already happened. It's not an issue of we know one day we're going to win. It's no, no, Jesus has won. 
Jesus is king. Jesus has conquered. And so now we're just telling those last bit of the Japanese army the truth about what's already taken place, what's already happened. Uh, so here's kind of a cool thing. If this is true of Christ, and we said that one day we will reign with Christ, we will experience, we will inherit the kingdom, which means we get to experience the blessings of the kingdom along with Jesus. If it is true that Jesus already reigns in the kingdom, that means that to some degree, we already get to experience the blessings of the kingdom. That that's already true for us. Um, Colossians 1.3 says this, using past tense, um, and, and I'm sorry, not 1.3, 1.13, I actually referenced it earlier, um, that God has rescued us from, or delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Brought us in, it's already happened. We're already in the kingdom of the son that he loves. So while it is not to the full extent, we do already get to experience some of the blessings of that kingdom, the joy and the peace and some of the authority and the power of that kingdom. The question is how? How does that take place? How do we already get some of the inheritance? And the answer that the Bible consistently gives on this issue is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the way that we get those things. Um, the way it's used in Ephesians 1, 14, is that the Holy Spirit is the down payment or he is the guarantee of the inheritance that we receive. We are sealed with him as the guarantee, as the down payment for what we're receiving. Now, the way a down payment works is that it is a part of the actual whole payment. So if I am buying a used car for $10,000 and I put a down payment down of $2,000 on it, that is part of the $10,000. There's not still $10,000 that I owe them. Now I only owe them eight. I've already given them part of the $10,000. That same word, a down payment, a deposit, a guarantee is used to describe the Holy Spirit for us, that he is part of the kingdom and its benefits and its beauty and its blessings already enacted to us in our lives. Like we already get to experience part of the kingdom that we anticipate and look forward to so much, the joy and the holiness and growth, that, that day when we will be there and we will be perfect and there will no longer be sin, we get a little bit of that through the Holy Spirit as he is growing us and making us more and more like him. Um, the future kingdom, something we anticipate is already taking place now. Now, Jim has talked about, I think, this term, um, over-realized eschatology, um, which is where we, where we um, take the blessings of the future kingdom, right, where I'm completely sinless and where there's no more sickness in my body and where it's complete joy and, and where I'm in complete, I say complete, it's, it's God who has the complete authority but allows me to reign with Christ and I try and take all of that and put it into the present now. That's over-realized eschatology. I shouldn't be sick anymore. I should be experiencing all these blessings, health and wealth and prosperity because, because I get the blessings of the kingdom. No, no, no. No, I don't get the full blessings of the kingdom this side of eternity. One day I get all of them, but I do get to experience them now. If we are not experiencing, though, any of the future of the kingdom, something's wrong. We're not living by the Spirit. We're not walking by the Spirit because there ought to be markers of joy and power and peace in, the, in a Christian's life because the kingdom is already there. We're already inheriting to some degree the kingdom through the Holy Spirit. 
Um, so here is kind of the last thing I would say is, and I, I can't put both in front of this. It makes the sentence all weird. But um, so the kingdom is, as it's described in the epistles, not for the unrighteous, but also for the unrighteous. Now, I'm going to need to qualify that statement just a little bit because it's, it's not um, 100% theologically accurate, but I think it is. Um, so I, I read to you this, this line from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Um, I'll read it to you again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here is verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what Paul says. The unrighteous don't get in. All these different kinds of people don't get in. And the NIV says it like this. And that is what you were. But you're not that anymore. You've been washed. You've been made clean. You've been sanctified. And so now you do get to inherit the kingdom because you're no longer in that, um, in that uh, realm of, in, uh, of unrighteousness. That's where I have to qualify the statement. Technically, it is still true. The unrighteous do not inherit it. The, the, the beauty of the matter is that we get declared righteous and that's how we get in. But it is not by our own doing. Um, therefore, it is not our own righteousness that takes care of that. Second Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin, took it on us so that we could take on his righteousness. And in that way, unrighteous people like you and I get to inherit the kingdom um, this doesn't take away from the warnings that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. That's not to say, so fine, now you can live however you want. No, no, what Paul is saying is that is what you were, so don't live like it anymore. Like you have the Holy Spirit now. You've been washed and sanctified in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. You do not have to live that kind of life anymore. That life is not for kingdom dwellers. That life is not for heirs to the kingdom. And, and so walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit in that way. So these things are true as the epistles describe it. The kingdom of God is the Son's, but it is also the Father's because one day he will give it all back to him. Um, the kingdom is a future reality, and as we look forward to and anticipate the coming kingdom of God, the coming kingdom we, um, that moves us to a greater level of godliness and faithfulness, but it is also a present reality. And we have the ability for that godliness and faithfulness because we have the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come in our lives, the true resurrection, the true joy of his presence, the true holiness of a sinless life. Um, all of those things are already ours in part because of Christ. And the truth is that the kingdom is not for the unrighteous. It is only the righteous who get in. But... The epistles in the Bible as a whole teach us that God made the unrighteous.
people like you and I righteous so that we can be in.